The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Great, Father. It's good to see you. Yes, Father. Great to be here after a very busy Holy Week. Thank you for uh, everything that you uh, everything that you do for us during Holy Week. And Absolutely. Had a great deal of help. Yep. Choir sang beautifully. Those, as those who listen to the WCB Ohio website can attest. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, all of the, the sacristans, the servers, uh, all of those who work so hard to prepare. What was necessary to celebrate the mysteries of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection, all of them deserve a great deal of credit, because they don't want the credit from me. They would much rather have it from our Lord himself, and I'm sure they will. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Father. Well, we have a lot of emails, Father, so let's jump right in. This first one we've had uh, for quite some time now. We actually received it around Christmas time of 2021. And at that time, a viewer said that uh, Bishop Sanborn had... Just recently released episode one of his demonstration of the Kasikiakum thesis. Uh, the first principle he enunciated is uh, where he talked about the indefectibility of the church, the indefectibility of the juridical structure of the church, namely the hierarchical offices of pope, bishop, and priest, along with the means of election or appointment to those same offices. I said that these offices cannot be destroyed without violating the promise of our Lord. Uh, however, she says, Bishop Sanborn did not cite any particular authority for this principle. He simply treated it as if it were unassailable Catholic doctrine. Um, but the question is whether this, uh, whether there is currently any school of thought that would reject this principle. Is there anyone, Father, that you are aware of that would oppose this, this uh, principle or cite any authority in support of the opposition? Well, if the question is, do I know anyone who... Uh does not support or who opposes the Kasikiapukum thesis, the answer is yes. I think there's a very small handful of people who do support it. I think most of the traditional Catholics uh, do not support it, uh, including those who understand it and those who don't understand it. I think there are those who understand what the thesis is and those who don't understand. But I think they all, um, who oppose it, find it to be uh, just on the face of it, um, um, kind of spurious, as I do. I consider it to be rather spurious. Um, the writer here says that Father Sanborn had his first episode, and he began with um, uh, the matter of the church's indefectibility, which, according to the author of this question, said he, he tied to the juridical structure of the church, right? Uh, papacy, the episcopacy, and, and not only those offices, but how people are chosen to fill those offices. <clears throat> well, the concept of the indefectibility of the church extends far beyond uh, the juridical structure of the church. 
So um, I, the implication uh, that I, my first reaction to what you read there is that Father Sanborn was basically uh, emphasizing that as being the primary uh, thrust uh, of about indefectibility, with the meaning of indefectibility of the church. Um, but perhaps, perhaps that's not so. But the question, as it is asked, uh, I think would lend to that interpretation. In any case, um, with regard to the question of the indefectibility of the church, I think if one goes and examines the uh, the approved manuals, the theological manuals, and dogmatic theology, de ecclesia, you'd find that the indefectibility of the church affects uh, all three of the ways in which the church itself is one. You know, the church is one, holy, catholic, and apostolic, and the church's unity depends upon the unity of her, her faith, the unity of, of her worship, and the unity of her government, or rule. <clears throat> and uh, certainly the indefectibility of the church does not just focus on the third part, the rule or government. It, it applies to the faith. The faith itself obviously cannot change. The faith as taught by our Lord cannot become other than what he taught us. You know, We can develop uh, conclusions from that which then can be uh, dogmatically defined as matters of faith, <clears throat> but the faith itself cannot change. And uh, so it is with um, you know, the, uh, the worship of the church. The, the church's indefectibility prevents her from changing her form of worship from one to another. We have the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which is the very heart and soul of the church's worship. All other devotions of the church, all, other, you know, all the other sacraments are directed to that real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament and the sacrifice of which it is the foundation, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. The Church cannot dispense with that and find some other form of worship. So there, the, the Church in her very nature is indefectible. That is to say that she cannot change essentially what she is. Uh, the modernists deny that. The modernists say, no, we, we can change the Church. The Church has to evolve, even as the faith has to evolve, even as worship has to evolve. Even as government has to involve the rule within the church, the authority, so the entire church, they say, must evolve. Um, evolve with mankind, essentially. So uh, even, even uh, proposing the idea of, of the evolution of God, or the very idea of God. That's the modernist idea. Uh, that's Francis's idea, okay? But to say, to single out the uh, indefectibility of the church as referring to her juridical structure, I think would be very myopic, and I, I don't think that would agree uh, with the teaching of the approved you know, dogmatic theologians of the church. But one must always remember with regard to the thesis of Kasikiakum, <clears throat> which basically makes a distinction between the material papacy and the formal papacy. I, I mean, I don't want to go into long discussions about this. But that uh, Pope, that Francis is the Pope materially, but formally he does not have the authority of the Pope. Okay, I mean that's a simple, maybe an oversimplification, but it comes down to that basically. Uh, this is just an attempt to try to um, somehow salvage the situation today with Francis and the modernists taking control in the Vatican. Um, 
you know, this is uh, one, one of many different attempts to try to deal with the crisis in the church <clears throat> and uh, try to account for it and allow for it. Um, this is an, a, an, an attempt, evidently, to see how well the papacy can continue this way uh, because if Francis is a material pope, then we could say that his appointments to cardinals of cardinals could be legitimate, or at least, you know, they could be honest to goodness cardinals, and they would have the power to elect a true pope in the future. And that's how we avoid a serious problem with sated vacantism today. Um, so this is kind of a strange a hybrid, if you will, of uh, being sated vacantist and not being sated vacantist. Mm -hmm. Being sated vacantist as far as the authority of the papacy in the church, and not and not sated vacantist with regard to somebody actually sitting in the chair of Peter. <laughs> so um, one must bear in mind, though, that uh, people are grasping for straws right now to explain what's going on in the church. It's unprecedented. So inevitably, people are going to be scrambling to try to find a solution. Ordinarily, the the answer would be given to us by the magisterium of the church, but that's precisely what is now under attack. Um, so people are left to kind of, um, as I say, scramble to find uh, some kind of plausible answer they can intellectually uh, accept or emotionally accept. Uh, the thesis of Kazikiakum is just one such attempt. One has to remember, though, it is only a thesis. It's just a theory, is all it is. It's somebody's theory. Gerard uh, Laurier, the Dominican theologian, came up with this theory. So, I mean, it's, it's very new. Um, it's kind of a reaction or response to the changes in the church brought in by modernism, the revolution uh, of the modernists. And um, as a theory, I mean, it, it has no real weight behind it. One looks at, you know, theological arguments in its favor. Uh, then one decides whether these theological arguments have any validity or not. Personally, I think there are a number of problems with it that are so grave that I don't think you can distinguish uh, in the papacy between the material papacy and the formal papacy. The papacy is what it is. Its very essence is that you have authority, right? Authority to feed the lambs and feed the sheep, to speak and act as the shepherd. So how can we materially and formally you know, distinguish or separate that? Um, it sounds like Solomon saying, well, cut the baby in half and we'll solve the problem. So anyway, but it also uh, kind of reminds me of some of the theories that come out with regard to Benedict XVI and Francis saying, well, um, you know, you have to, to separate the, the munis from the minister ministerium, the ministry from the, from the, from the office or something like that. And you can say that, well, maybe, maybe Benedict gave up part of that, but not all of it. So maybe the papacy is split now between Francis and Benedict. And then uh, many have gone on to this uh, kind of eating the whole loaf in a sense. Yet they're saying, well, Francis is not the pope because Benedict never really did resign the papacy. And so Benedict remains the pope. What they hope to gain from that, I don't know, because again, Benedict is a modernist who is uh, very much prominent at Vatican II as one of the leading modernists, and after Karl Rahner. So, um, 
It's just that uh, the modernists have gone so far into Francis that Benedict looks very conservative, relatively speaking. Um, but we're not looking at, rel relatively speaking, conservatism. We're looking at uh, Catholicism here. You know, integri in, in, in the integrity of Catholic, Catholic belief and worship and rule, which ultimately comes down to tradition. So uh, I reject this thesis of Kasikiakum and... Um, and I uh, find it to be not only unsatisfactory, I found it to be untenable in terms of Catholic teaching. I think one has to do a certain amount of uh, finessing, to say the least, maybe even violence to Catholic theological teaching in order to make the thesis of Gesicki Akum look plausible. I don't believe it is possible. Okay. All right. Father, another email. This viewer references uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. <laughs> Verses 42 and 43, he says in uh, these, these verses, the goats go to hell for omission of these deeds. The church has never said that the omission of these acts is a mortal sin. The church also says that you only go to hell for mortal sins knowingly unconfessed. So how can this be? Further, these acts can only have been committed by believers because they clearly believe in Christ by their response. Also, the reference to sheep and goats relates to the general judgment but the fathers of the church don't talk about this difficulty. So, Father, could you please help explain this? Well, I'd like to try to help explain it. Um, uh, first of all, with regard to St. Matthew chapter 25, uh, this is where we read our Lord's words uh, when he separates the, the goats on his left hand from the sheep on his right hand at the judgment. Mm -hmm. And our Lord says to the goats, depart from you, Depart from me, ye accursed ones, into the everlasting fires of hell, because I was hungry, and you did not feed me. Because I was thirsty, you did not give me to drink. And so on. And there were all of these acts of charity, which we now refer to as the corporal works of mercy. Right? And uh, I don't know if many people realize that what they learned in their catechism instructions uh, as the corporal works of mercy were actually spoken by our Lord in St. Matthew chapter 25. Um, with the exception of the last one, one is to, to bury the dead, which is considered an act of mercy and respect for the dead. And our Lord did not say, when I, and I was dead and you buried me. Our Lord did not say that. Um, but uh, we do have the spiritual work of mercy, the seventh, to pray for the living and the dead. Okay? The spiritual works of mercy were gathered, as you, as you might say, from the scriptures by the church into one. They were not stated consecutively by our Lord uh, as the corporal works of mercy were in St. Matthew 20, chapter 25. Nonetheless, that gives a very brief and inadequate uh, account of where we have these works of mercy. Seven spiritual and seven corporal. Here, the gentleman, if it is a gentleman, a lady, I'm not, I'm not sure, would, is referring to the corporal works of mercy, about feeding and hungering and clothing and so on. And our Lord's saying to the goats that they are condemned to the fires of hell for failing to provide these things. And a person asks, this uh, good soul asks, well, um, you know, if, if it is true that we can only be condemned to hell for unrepented mortal sins or unabsolved mortal sins, unforgiven mortal sins, let's put it that way, 
then how uh, can this be true, what our Lord says, if these do not constitute mortal sins? Uh, because none of these is actually prescribed. Well, as a matter of fact, there are two, two sources of obligation that you and I have. And there are two ways in which we can sin. We can sin against justice, and we can sin against charity. Okay? I mean, obviously, there's fortitude and temperance. We can sin against any of these virtues, sins against God. But ultimately, um, sins against justice and sins against charity are, you know, got to be. Um, and, and sins against purity, you know, certainly. But here, when we're talking about, when we're talking about uh, not giving food to the hungry and not giving drink to the thirsty and so on, we're talking about uh, sins against charity. There are certain people who, who owe food to the hungry. Parents owe food to their hungry children. Uh, parents owe a drink to their thirsty children. They have to provide these things. It's their vocation, right, as parents. And they owe them injustice, therefore. I mean, what's something, when something is owed, it is due injustice. And um, just like between husband and wife, there are certain obligations they have to each other that are due injustice. And if husband and wife fail to, to provide these things for each other, they are mortally sinning against the virtue of justice. But um, charity also involves a very serious obligation, and an obligation which can be under pain of mortal sin, where there is great need. There is an, a, an obligation to provide what is needed greatly if, if we have it to give. For example, Tom, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not canonically appointed here. You know, you mentioned I'm, I'm in charge of Immaculate Conception Church here in Norwood, Ohio, and I have freely accepted that responsibility. Uh, I haven't been appointed to that position by, uh, you know, any prelate of the church, by the local ordinary or anyone else. Um, and there are Catholics who come and they, they have voluntarily placed themselves themselves under my care. And I take that very seriously. <clears throat> but, you know, if we follow the, the old rules, as it were, for example, um, a pastor in a church has a very serious obligation to care for the spiritual needs um, and to some extent the, the corporal needs of the Catholics within his parish. So those who live within the, within the geographical bounds of a certain parish have a, a, a strict right to expect their pastor, their priests, especially their pastor, to be there when they need him and provide what they need. If they need absolution that their priest, their pastor is there to make sure they're able to be to go to confession and to be absolved. Uh, Sunday Mass, they have to have the, the, the means of meeting their obligations as Catholics. Um, if they need to be anointed, if they're dying or in danger of death, they have to be able to have the confidence that the pastor is going to uh, honor a very serious obligation, not only charity, but injustice, that he will see to them that they are able to receive the sacrament of extraction. But suppose I were to receive a phone call tonight, say, say the phone rang at 3 a.m., and it's a local nursing home. And uh, let's say a, a, somebody on staff at the nursing home is calling, looking for a Catholic priest, because they have a Catholic uh, who is dying. And uh, it says in the chart that they're Catholics, and they belong to such and such a parish. And uh, they've, you know, so I say, when they call me, I say, look, 
you've called Immaculate Conception Church. That's not, you know, St. George or St. James or uh, St. Jerome's. So whatever this woman says she belongs to, suppose I were to say to them, well, you'd better call the priest at their own home parish. And the person then says uh, that, well, we've tried, but we can't get through. Um, when, I, when I bring up this example, I'm actually thinking of, of something that actually occurred, okay, more than once. And um, so when we call, they not only have an answering machine, they've got an answering service. And what they do is they tell me they'll pass the message on to the priest at St. So-and-so's um, first thing in the morning, like 9 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> when they're answering their phones again. So this, this uh, patient probably will not last through the night, so we need, a, we need a priest to come to them. They're asking us, they've been asking us to call for a priest. So suppose I were to say then, well, look, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, I am not the pastor of this person. I'm the pastor of a, I'm in charge of a traditional Catholic church here. And we do not uh, practice the Novus Ordo, the new order here. And no doubt, so-and-so, the person you're talking about is actually a Novus Ordo Catholic. And uh, so I am really not responsible for this person. And so uh, I think you just have to, to uh, accept the situation set up by his or her pastor to call them at 9 o'clock in the morning and let them know that you got this message. Uh, but as it is, I have no obligation to come, and I just hang up the phone. But what would you think of that? Not good. Fine. Not, not, very good. not very charitable. Not very charitable? How can you say that, Tom? Would you admit that I do not have a strict obligation of justice to go to that person? I mean, there's nothing, strictly speaking, owed to that person. Uh, <clears throat> But, I, so you could say that I did not sin against charity. I did not sin against justice. You could say I did not sin against justice. Would you think I sinned against charity? Absolutely. Absolutely, you'd say. Would you think it would be a mortal sin? Probably. Probably so, right? This person was calling for a priest in danger of death. And uh, evident, you know, you would have to assume that they would, quote-unquote, need to see a priest, right? For their own peace of mind, so they wouldn't despair, or even, you know, if they died in the state of mortal sin, went to hell, right? That'd be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? That'd be a very grave sin against charity, right? So, um, you see, um, in a certain way, I think that casts, that's why we always go. That's why we always go. And people know we always go. You know, they call us. From other traditional churches around the, you know, they, they ask us to go very often um, because they know we do. But it casts a certain uh, light on uh, this question, I think, and on St. Matthew chapter 25 and the Corporal Works of Mercy, why it can be a grave sin against charity not to provide the things that are really needed to those who are very much in need. Uh, food, clothing, and shelter, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, these are real needs, and they can be grave needs. Uh, we're not obliged to provide everything that somebody wants, but we are obliged to the extent that we can provide everything, whatever a person needs, strictly speaking, needs. So, uh, yes, in this case, our Lord is telling us it's not just a matter uh, of our sins against justice, 
that there are sins against charity that he takes very, very seriously. And uh, they can be um, actually uh, mortal sins even of omission in terms of what we fail to do. When there's a genuine need. As our Lord said, uh, in Deuter we read in Deuteronomy, uh, God saying, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. We also read in the Gospels that our Lord said at the Last Supper, a new commandment I give you, that you love each other as I have loved you. And uh, that places a great deal of burden. And that, that's, he, he does not say a new suggestion I make to you. He says a new commandment I've given you. So yes, that is one of the commandments. Uh, our Lord talked about loving one another as you would, you know, uh, love your own, your own self, yourself, want to be loved, as it were. And um, that he called it the second great commandment, which is like he said. He compared it even to the first great commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul, thy whole strength. So um, there's no doubt that there's this very serious obligation of charity. And I think we have to put that in that context to understand it. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you, Father. And then another email. <clears throat> this viewer says they have a family member who attends a Society of St. Pius X Church. And this family member recently gave a large purple and red scapular called the Scapular of Benediction and Protection. Sphere says, I have never heard of this devotion, and I'm slightly leery of anything uh, like this that may uh, be tending towards a Novus Ordo and their modernist devotions. Uh, there's a pamphlet that accompanied it, and it states that the making of the scapular is a request from heaven to uh, Marie Julie Jehaney during an ecstasy of hers. So, Father, would you have any information about this scapular of benediction and protection? Well, uh, it is ascribed to uh, Juliet Marie Jehaney. Um, the mystic of the, what, 1800s? Mm -hmm. I think it goes back to the 1800s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Blessed Anna Maria Taigi and uh, uh, Julie Marie Jehenny are two of the sources for the um, idea of the three days of darkness. Right. Two sources. Um, there are others too, but uh, they um, speak of this. And uh, that's very well known. What is less known, of course, is this uh, purple scapular. But this is attributed to Julie Marie Jehani as a special devotion for these latter times. And um, it is a little puzzling because I, I, I'm told, and I've read, that the purple scapular honors the passion of our Lord. But actually, there is already a scapular of the passion of our Lord which is approved by the church. And I, I, the blessing is in the rituale of the church itself. The blessing of this purple scapular is not contained in any rituale of the church that I know of. Uh, but there is a blessing of, of the passion, a scapular of the passion of our Lord. Uh, so it seemed a little bit redundant, but also um, I was reading of certain promises that came attached to this scapular. And one of them was uh, that when, during the three days of darkness, the scapular will give off a brilliant light that will enlighten the entire home. And I thought, well, this is in direct uh, 
you know, opposition to the talk about the blessed candle and that being the only thing that will give light. And um, you have to have the blessed candles there in order to light up whatever, because the darkness will be so impenetrable that only the light from the flame of that candle will, will be, you know, actually illuminate the world around you. So this idea, no, the scapular will actually give such a brilliant light that it will enlighten the entire home. Well, that doesn't seem to, to coincide very well with the blessed candle uh, uh, prophecy. So um, I really don't know what to think about it. I, I, I tend to um, um, not be convinced. And... Um, Again, I, I don't know that any formal approbation has been given to it. There's an account that the local, the local bishop approved it, uh, I think. Um, I don't know if, you know, the, the bishop who came after him uh, perpetuated that approval or if it was just something unique to that particular bishop, I don't know. But uh, I don't see in the rituale, the Roman rituale, um, at least in the, in the 1940s, um, a reference to a blessing any such purple scapular. Okay. So, I don't know, I, I tend to be uh, skeptical. Right. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Father, this viewer has always wondered why it was that Satan did not know for sure who Jesus was when he tempted him in the desert, but the demons who Jesus cast out knew it was him, and that's why he ordered them to be quiet. Father, could you talk about this a little bit? Well, it does say uh, in the gospel that when Jesus uh, cast demons out, they were announcing that he is the Son of God and he silenced them. So there's no doubt but that they knew uh, that he was, quote, the Son of God, which Lucifer did not know during the temptation in the desert. Remember, our Lord uh, was to work his first public miracle, right? He was, uh, our Lord was baptized by St. John the Baptist, went into the desert for 40 days of fasting, came out of the desert, went to the wedding feast of Cana, and there he worked his first public miracle. The devil didn't have the benefit. Lucifer did not have the benefit of that first public miracle to make any decisions, right? Uh, he was trying to provoke our Lord to work a miracle. <laughs> Curiously enough, the first miracle he wanted him to work was to turn stones into bread to feed himself and Later, very, very shortly thereafter, he turned much water into wine to, for the guests at the, at the feast day, at the wedding feast. Rather. But uh, in any case, um, the devil did not know, and when he took our Lord up to the pinnacle of the, of the temple to cast himself down, he didn't know. And when the devil took him to the high mountain to see the glories of the world, the devil still didn't know. Uh, even when our Lord said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou adore, and him alone shalt thou serve. The devil didn't know. But he saw. But, but the, the demons and the devils, the demons being the, the condemned human souls, and the devil and the demon the devils being the fallen angels, they did witness miracles by our Lord. And so later on the demons would cry out, You're the Son of God, you're the Son of God. So our Lord now performing these miracles had satisfied the devil as to who he really was. We have to always remember, though, the idea of the Son of God becoming man involves a mystery called the Incarnation. It's a supernatural mystery. 
It's something that even the angels in heaven can't explain. They witness it. They see it. They see the mystery. They see the mystery of the Blessed Trinity. And it, well, you might say dazzles them. It's, it's astounding. It's splendid. It's wonderful to them to see the power behind these mysteries. But, I mean, at the time, the, the demons on earth could go out from the possessed man singing and saying, you are the son of God. But did they really understand the significance? Did even Lucifer understand the significance of this when he was demanding to know? Um, I mean, there, there's being a son of God. I mean, we, by grace, we are children of God, right? I mean, by, by grace, in the state of grace, you are, you are a son of God right now, you know, as far as you are a child of God. That's kind of grace, though. But the idea of the Son of God from all eternity, the divine word, becoming man and taking human nature such that the divine person now is also man and has united himself with humanity in this, in this way is astounding. That they are witnessing, they see the, the human body, they see the, well, the devils might even be able to see the human soul. Um, but to see the, the divine person whose body and soul, the, that human soul and that human body belong to, that is, that is something else. It's the divine person. Jesus Christ is the divine person of God, second person. So um, they couldn't possibly have really understood that mystery. Even the greatest of the angels cannot fathom the greatness of that mystery. <clears throat> so they they don't just believe it now, they see it. Um, but they can't explain it because it takes infinite power. So when St. Peter says even the devil believes and he trembles in terror, uh, the devil has never actually seen God face to face, as you know, never seen God in the beatific vision. So he still has room for faith. And even faith, you know, horrifies him, <laughs> you know. Um, and so when these demons on earth went out from the possessed man, crying out, you are the son of God, and let's silence them, uh, they were revealing something that um, our Lord did not want them to reveal at that time. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, their testimony was very powerful for those who did manage to hear it. But uh, to say that they... Um, had the faith that you and I as Catholics now know, taught by Christ and taught to us by the Church itself, dogmatically, that they had, they un, had a, some kind of a comprehension of the understanding that the Son of God from all eternity had become man in time. They, they did not understand that mystery. They knew that uh, Jesus had the title of the Son of God in a special way, but in a way that was beyond their powers of understanding. Okay. Okay. All right. Father, could you tell the story of how the bones of St. Peter came to be in the wooden box in which they were found? In a previous episode, you told us about the search for the bones, but you left out the part of how they were, uh, actually came to be in the wooden box. Well, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, there are books written on the subject. Uh, the head um, archaeologist was Madame Garducci. Guaraducci, Signora, Signora Guaraducci. And she's a very great scholar, actually. She was put in charge of that excavation uh, for a very good reason. I mean, there are other Jesuit archaeologists who were involved, 
Sinag Guadalucci is the one who actually, I think, has written the definitive books on the subject. Okay. And deciphered the, uh, the graffiti, uh, scratched under the walls by pilgrims, testifying to the presence of St. Peter's remains there. Um, <clears throat> all we know is that when that site was found, uh, well, let me put it this way. I can't say all we know because there are testimonies through time uh, that have come down um, in various languages, mostly Latin and Greek, about the presence of the mortal remains of St. Peter under the high altar at St. Peter's Basilica, because the basilica itself was raised as a monument to St. Peter's faith by the Emperor Constantine. And the confession, I mean, even the area that leads down to where St. Peter's remains are is called the Confessional of St. Peter. Not because St. Peter went to confession there, although he did have to go to confession at times, uh, but the uh, Lord had to absolve him. But, um, but because it was his profession of faith in dying, give, finally giving his life for Christ, you know. And um, so there we find the growth of St. Peter uh, testified to over time, uh, for example, in the oh, middle of the second century already. There was a priest named Gaius who visited as a pilgrim, came to Rome and visited the site of St. Peter's uh, burial. By that time, the ground had already been bought and a red wall, uh, uh, you know, a masonry wall, red stuccoed on the outside, had been erected up against the, uh, the tombs to the, to the um, well, in that case, it would have been to the west, um, that were kind of built, being built up higher and higher as time went on along, you know, the, the slope of the Vatican Hill. And to prevent them from being built right over the top of the place where St. Peter's remains had been buried hastily by Christian slaves the night he died, the uh, Pope succeeded in buying that ground and walled off that area right along where the tombs had, had encroached, you know. So he actually saved that area from being uh, buried under, you know, masonry of pagan tombs. And uh, it became a place of pilgrimage. Well, immediately after Peter's burial, it was a place of pilgrimage by Christians who would come. <clears throat> but Gaius was one of those pilgrimages. He was a priest, and he came there in the middle of the second uh, century, and he actually spoke of it. He talked about the trophy of uh, St. Peter, the monument to St. Peter. That was referred to as the trophy, trophium of Gaius, meaning his testimony and here you have this actual physical monument to St. Peter there. And um, we know that at various times uh, there were vicissitudes that struck Rome, the plundering of Rome um, under, what it was, it was, was it uh, Alaric? Um, even in the, in the year 430 BC, I think, already then. Um, and um, there was a time when the remains of St. Peter and St. Paul were removed from the places they'd been buried and were carried off to the catacombs of St. Sebastiano, St. Sebastian, and, um, and were kept there for safekeeping uh, in the underground there of the catacombs of St. Sebastiano. And um, 
Only after the time of danger for a plundering had passed were the remains of St. Peter and St. Paul returned to their original burial place. There were other times, too, um, <coughs> when history <coughs> records various um, just uh, crises in Rome. <coughs> Whether the remains of St. Peter and St. Paul were removed at those times, I'm not sure. We do know this, though, that in that uh, the church was always aware of the presence of the uh, of the remains of St. Peter bearing, being buried there. Constantine actually had the church, the original basilica of St. Constantine, uh, uh, basilica of St. Peter, built there precisely because he wanted to position the altar uh, over directly over the remains of St. Peter and over his grave. Uh, the entire basilica was oriented around that grave, which helps explain, to some extent, why the, the Romans, master builders as they were, built the basilica the way they did. I mean, they had to, they had to build it into the side of a hill. <clears throat> they had to uh, actually, as it were, uh, decapitate a number of graves, uh, quite a number of the above-ground hippogea, or mausoleums that had been built there, had to be sacrificed and filled in with dirt from the upper part of the hill and packed into these monuments down below to form a foundation for the basilica. Um, and that remained that way since Constantine finished his Basilica of St. Peter about the year 360. Um, so um, it, it actually, even though the church had known of the presence of St. Peter's remains there, and it actually appealed to them. And, um, for example, when, when archbishops would be made, uh, they would be sent uh, as a symbol of their authority as archbishops, but also their union with the Holy See. They'd be sent to pallium. The pallium was this uh, lens wool cloth, like a stole, a special kind of stole that would be lowered down into the relief regions below where St. Peter's grave was, and then brought up, Again, to show the union of faith and worship with St. Peter. And then they would send those pallia around the world to the newly named archbishops as a symbol of the authority they had. That They would trace it back to the apostles and notably back to St. Peter. So this went on for centuries. The church was in this practice showing her understanding and her confidence that the remains of St. Peter are right here. <clears throat> Protestants, of course, denied that. They had no reason to. They just denied it. Uh, except the only reason they had to do it was as a protest. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, it wasn't until they were starting to, to build a tomb. I think they were excavating a tomb for Pope Pius XI, was it? They were going to build a little uh, monument to tomb for St. Pius, uh, Pius XI, if I recall correctly. In, uh, and they, they pierced the floor of St. Peter's, the current basilica, and they actually broke through the ceiling of something below, a cavity below. <clears throat> and uh, they were kind of surprised, but they, they knew what was supposed to be down there. The, the ancient basilica of, Saint, of Constantine had finally been built over and by the new basilica, which was dedicated in 1626. I mean, the new basilica took from 1504 to 1626 to build. 
And they, they, prior to that, I mean, the old Basilica of Constantine had stood all those years from like 360 to 1504, you know. And then little by little by little was superseded by the new Basilica as it was built in sections over the top of it. So it was in fairly recent times that they knew the ancient Basilica uh, of Constantine and they knew that they had built over the top of it. So when they broke through the floor, they shouldn't have been terribly surprised, but they, they thought this is a great opportunity. I mean, we're talking about the very beginning of World War II here, the Pius XI. So Pope Pius XII told them to keep digging. He told them uh, to keep digging because he wanted them to excavate their way to under the high altar of St. Peter's. He wanted them to find the remains of St. Peter after all those centuries. And they did. They found the wet red wall. They found various things. They found the graffiti uh, covering the wall, um, you know, saying in Latin and Greek and perhaps some other ancient languages, Peter and Paul pray for us, St. Peter, you know, pray for the family of Fortunatus Gaius or something like that, you know. Um, some ancient hand had scratched that into the brickwork or the stucco of the wall. Uh, there's just a myriad of these, you know, invocations all over the wall. <coughs> They didn't find any bones. They found a box, a sealed box. And that's what the writer is asking about. And they collected this box and they took it back to the Vatican and they, have it there. they had it there for uh, several years anyway. <clears throat> they just collected it as an artifact. They determined that the, the box was of more recent origin. It was a wooden box, so you know it wasn't exactly 2,000 years old, they figured. So they didn't really place a great deal of importance on it. They might have thought it was some kind of votive offering of somebody from somebody years ago. But the time came when they actually did open the box and they discovered there what they'd actually been looking for. They found the fragments of bone. And uh, then they also found scraps of uh, purple cloth signifying royalty with gold embroidery. <coughs> that obviously wasn't buried with St. Peter the night that he died. So they found that... Uh, that the bones of Peter had been collected and had been placed in this box, and they'd actually had it in their possession all this time. Uh, it has been restored. Actually, the fragments of bone now have been placed in uh, uh, airtight, hermetically sealed, that is, uh, containers, uh, some kind of polymer, and uh, to prevent further, you know, uh, uh, disintegration of them. And they are actually now visible. Um, one can, one can uh, go on the Vatican website, look up the SCAVI, S-C-A-V-I, SCAVI, which is the excavations, and actually uh, communicate with the office, the Uffizio, and arrange to tour, and take the tour, and follow the, the archaeological the archaeological uh, investigation, step by step, <clears throat> down under St. Peter's Basilica into the realm of the earlier Basilica of Constantine, and then down farther below that uh, into the earth and along the pathway of those um, mausolea, those hippogea, as they, uh, when they were above, when they, when they were under the late day, one can actually follow the walkway and past the doors that would lead into them. Some of them have been excavated out, 
after all these centuries, from the time that Constantine had them filled in to form a, a, a foundation. Some of them have been meticulously, thoroughly excavated, so now you can see the niches, and you can see the, even the frescoes in the wall, the colors, the paintings, and <clears throat> the urns, the funeral urns where people's ashes were, were buried. But the main th reason for doing that is to come to where they found the red wall. <clears throat> they worked their way towards what they, where they knew the where they knew the um, uh, the high altar of St. Peter was. They worked their way, picking their way through these tombs underground. They actually came into, right up against the red wall. And they excavated around the red wall, and they claimed to, they, they came to the trophy of Gaius that Gaius had spoken of, the marble columns and the marble slab that had been there. <clears throat> uh, very beautiful, very prominent when he was there. Now they are buried with the tomb remains of St. Peter. And um, one can follow that. Um, and come to the actual spot where uh, the tomb of St. Peter was and where the bones now have been restored. And I recommend that to anyone and everyone. Even if you go to Rome, don't go to anything, don't do anything else. Don't even have any gelato. Just go and visit the remains of St. Peter under the basilica and you will have done enough to justify the whole trip <laughs> just for doing that. So it's... Uh, a very moving memory for me to think of the time that I stood there with our students numerous times and prayed the Apostles' Creed in Latin or in English with them. Um, and even the tour guides were rather uh, impressed by that. They didn't get too many there who came there to make an act of faith, but there are those who do and were among them. And they, they tell us that they appreciate that very much. Hmm. So, Anyway, you know, when exactly the remains, the, the fragments of the bones of St. Peter were placed in, the, in that box, I don't know. I don't know if they dated the box or not. It's a much more recent times, obviously, than St. Peter's death. So somewhere along the line. Possibly back at the time that they were... Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a record of that. Perhaps um, uh, Signora Guaraducci speaks of that. I haven't seen that. Okay. But she has an idea when the fragments were actually placed in that wooden box and put into that kind of hollowed out section of the wall. I don't know when that would have been. But it was done. That's a fact. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating, Father. You know, we've, we've always uh, joked about doing a... Uh, a uh, What Catholics Believe episode on locations. <laughs> Maybe we can. Well, that'll be make, worth doing, that's for make sure. That, make that on the list there. Well, you might have to be careful, though, because, uh, you know, Italy is very, and Rome, uh, the Vatican, I'm sure, is still very strict about masks and vaccinations <laughs> and so on. In fact, I was just reading, and somebody just mentioned to me that uh, it got garnered headlines. Uh, the Secretary of State under Francis uh, Parolin is his name. Uh, Parolin, P-A-R-O-L-I-N, the one who's been very prominent uh, in the negotiations with the Communist Chinese, you know. Uh, he recently barred uh, Cardinal Burke from entering the, um, the Vatican because uh, Cardinal Burke had not been vaccinated. And here's a man who was very, very ill with, you know, the COVID-19 uh, and uh, certainly has probably very powerful natural immunity to it now, but he's barred because, because he didn't get vaccinated. Um, this is surreal, but it's the, the... 
let's face it, reality is surreal right now, <laughs> especially the reality of the Vatican. Yeah. That's the world we're living in. Um, Father, we had a couple of current events that we, we wanted to mention. I guess one of the big ones is the, uh, the Pentagon mm-hmm. and the, uh, I guess it's at the, the University yeah. of... Uh, you know, Tom, before we get to that, I, I agree yeah. totally. That's something that needs to be mentioned. But there was something from last week about Gardasil and the uh, That's right. the um, St. Jude Hospital question, right? That is true. Bye. And um, that, I remember that for last week because it impressed me as being important. Because I talked, somebody asked me before mm-hmm. about supporting St. Jude Hospital. Uh, yes. And I had said, well, I have done so in the past. I think they're doing good work. I'm not aware of any reason not to. But somebody did send in some information on that. At least uh, I seem to recall that. Yes, that's correct. They said, uh, for a year or more, I have been aware of St. Jude's Hospital's promotion of the Gardasil vaccine. Um, He he said that uh, this viewer says he no longer donates to St. Jude's Hospital. I also sent the CDC webpage on Gardasil. Uh, he says, I wonder what Danny Thomas would think of his dream hospital promoting a, quote, enabling vaccine. Right, right. Well, actually, uh, as a, because of that, I actually did a little bit of research and uh, find, and also the, our writer helped with that. Uh, Gardasil is one of these vaccines developed from the cells of aborted fetuses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, developed from them directly or tested upon them or both. And it is against the HPV, is that right? I think so. Uh, virus. Yes. Yeah. And uh, evidently, uh, St. Jude's Hospital now has this full program going about vaccinating using Gardasil, yeah. vaccinating even children against this HPV, um, human papilloma virus, I guess it's called, right? And not only has this uh, vaccine, I, under- I understand, been found to be very damaging at times, but uh, and 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 really not agreed to help against this virus. That's what I've read anyway. Uh, but the fact that it's developed from uh, fetal cells, I mean, there are any number of reasons why we would find that very problematic, morally problematic. So I appreciate uh, this um, this viewer is sending that information to me. And uh, at that point, I would I would have to say that I would be very well, I would have to really get past that before I could give any more support. I'd have to check on that to make sure that was not the case uh, before I could give any more support there. So uh, I appreciate that, and it's kind of a heads up to those who would, uh, well, not compromise their beliefs, you know, yeah. and moral principles. But I just wanted to mention that because it, that struck me as being rather important mm-hmm. in light of what we said before. Yep. But as far as the Pentagon, I don't know if, if many of our people are aware of the fact that the Pentagon is actively promoting socialism. <laughs> the Pentagon is actually is actively promoting socialism as a means of, quote, combating China. Now figure that out. This is really dystopian. This is surreal. I saw this article some time ago, like a few months ago. And uh, I guess when this event was actually scheduled to happen. And uh, I thought, you know, this is important. I think our, our good people need to know about this if they don't. 
It was uh, uh, actually buried in one of these conservative websites. But as soon as I saw the headline, I did a double take and I thought, what is this possible? <clears throat> now, this headline actually comes to us from, um, let's see. Uh, well, the article is by a Nick Kutsobinas. K-O-U-T-S-O-B-I-N-A-S. Dated February 15th, 2022. And I, I don't see an actual site listed here. but I think it was on Breitbart News, Father. Was it? I think so. I know there was an article. I think it was taken from Breitbart. I think that's where it actually started. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I find it... Well, I'll just read the beginning of that and then actually sh shift over to the Breitbart article just to give you an idea. This article by Nick Kutsabina says, The Pentagon is slated, this was before the event took place, the Pentagon is slated to host an event on Wednesday on, quote, the case for global justice and democratic socialism, unquote, in order to combat China, the Washington Free Beacon reported. The event, quote, responding to China, the case for global justice and democratic socialism will be open to the public and hosted at the Pentagon's top policy shop, the Institute for National Strategic Studies, a department within the National Defense University. Speaking at the event will be French economist and author of the book Time for Socialism, Thomas Piketty, P-I-K-E-T-T. -T. Uh, no, I beg your pardon. P-I-K-E-T-T-Y, P-I-K-E-T-T-Y, Thomas Piketty, who will argue that the right answer in addressing China's growth lies in ending Western arrogance and promoting a new emancipatory and egalitarian horizon on a global scale, a new form of democratic and participatory ecological and post-colonial socialism, quote-unquote. The invitation summary reads, quote, if they stick to their usual lecturing posture and a dated hyper-capitalist model, Western countries may find it extremely difficult to meet the Chinese challenge. Now, this is as, uh, as per the um, brochure, the invitation to Mr. Thomas Piketty's um, presentation of socialism and how we need to introduce democratic socialism in order to withstand the Chinese, communist Chinese. Now, this is really interesting to me because what he describes here <clears throat> It's saying we need to end Western ar arrogance. In other words, social uh, uh, capitalism is, is Western arrogance. We cling to capitalism out of arrogance. Now we have to opt for a new form of democratic and participatory ecological and post-colonial socialism. Well, that's the same as the Great Reset. This is, this is communism. This is exactly what the Great Reset is talking about. Participatory... <coughs> democratic, ecological, <coughs> post-colonial government, right? And oh, but it's not just, but Tom, it's not just an economic system. <clears throat> this is actually a revolution. You know, it amazes me. <clears throat> People can, 
<clears throat> can kind of wander through the capital and be accused with, with no weapons, shouting no threats, right? And be rounded up by the hundreds and imprisoned and charged with insurrection, right? Somebody can actually sit at Nancy Pelosi's desk, put his feet up on the desk. Somebody can take a piece of a signboard from there. None of this is right. None of this was right or justifiable. I totally agree with that, okay? But to call it insurrection is absurd. And here you have a man coming to the Pentagon at the Pentagon's own request to actually preach a new form of government for the United States and urging the members of the Pentagon and our military establishment to accept the advisability of a new form of government because this would end our Constitution. This so-called participatory democratic socialism is not just an economic system. It's another form of government. It would change entirely the whole meaning uh, the whole the whole structure of the way we're governed. Um, and this is what this man is advocating here, but that's not insurrection. That's not revolution. I mean, what Millie and the rest of them are doing, uh, you know, in bringing this man here to 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 uh, argue for this, actually it was an online uh, meeting, so it could have involved thousands of people. Um, I'm, I'm reading from, well, actually... Uh, this is by Christina Wong here, and this is the 11th of February here. And this is what Christina Wong reports. Pentagon's National Defense University to host lecture on the case for democratic socialism. And here's what she says. The Dem Department of Defense's National Defense University, NDU, the premier education institution for military and defense civilian leaders is planning to host a lecture on how Western countries should adopt socialism in response to the challenge from China. And this is actually a quote here. And um, this includes like official literature concerning it. The lecture, which is scheduled to take place online February 16th, is titled Responding to China, the Case for Global Justice and Democratic Socialism, and will be given by French economist Thomas Piketty, must be Piketty then, who is the author of a 2021 book entitled Time for Socialism. A summary of the event posted on the university's website reads as follows. Western countries are still struggling to define their attitude towards the Beijing regime. In this talk on February 22nd, 2022, Thomas Piketty will argue that the right, answers, the right answer lies in ending Western arrogance and promoting a new emancipatory and egalitarian horizon on a global scale, a new form of democratic and participatory, ecological, and post-colonial socialism. So here again, we're saying that this is how we're going to counter China by making America socialist. Essentially changing our form of government, changing our form of government into basically the Chinese model of government, because that's what it is, right? That's what they claim it is. Uh, participatory, ecological, and post-colonial socialism. So uh, it continues to say the notice for the event includes a bio for Piketty 
that lists two of his books, Capital in the 21st Century and Capital and Ideology, but does not mention his most recent Time for Socialism book. The lecture is part of the university's Institute for National Security Studies speaker series, which has hosted lectures focused on China over the past year. Um, so Sebastian Gorka, who served as an associate dean at the NDU for five years, highlighted the lecture on his show America First with Sebastian Gorka. On Friday, NDU is where colonels go to become generals, he said. This event is presented by the Pentagon Strategic Multilayer Assessment Program in collaboration with National Defense University's Eisenhower School of National Security. Eisenhower's name. Uh, his institution is being used to host an event promoting socialism in America, Gorka said, adding that American taxpayers are paying for the event. Quote, I'm not even disgusted. That's not even a strong enough word. I'm horrified, said Sebastian Gorka. So anyway, uh, a lot could be said about that. One could probably go online and follow the proceedings there. But the fact that they're having this, uh, this um, anti-apostle, this, this uh, you know, apostle, dark apostle of socialism come to address... Uh, this Institute of Policy here at the Pentagon really, is, as Gorka says, is more than disgusting. It is horrifying to think that this is what is being preached now in the halls of the Pentagon to our future military leaders. He says the colonels who intend to become generals. Uh, I think our people need to know this is going on. This is what the government is doing under uh, President Biden and where our country is going and why it's going there, right? So anyway, I thought, I thought it was important, and I appreciate your willingness to uh, uh, bring that up, Tom, because uh, I think it, it tells us what situation is we're dealing with here. You know, um, I wanted also, to, at some point, to talk about what's happening with Disney. Because Disney, as they say, gone woke. But Disney has been going woke for a long time. Disney has been promoting uh, homosexuality for a long time. Perversions of various kinds. And there, there's a, a plethora of symbolism in Disney animations. One gets the impression that there must be a, a high representation of, of um, deviance uh, in the animation department at Disney. It has been for quite a while now. Uh, so those who actually expose their children to this are exposing their children to a very dark message, a very bad message. If they get the children hooked on Disney, though this is their go-to uh, entertainment source, uh, the children are going to be um, basically, well, th there are those now who in, the, in management in Disney who say that they are using their entertainment to actually uh, bring the world in, in make, create a new gay world, a homosexual world. That they want to make LGBTQ plus acceptable everywhere, by everyone. And this is the uh, method they're going to use. They're going to use this method to educate uh, the upcoming generation in the LGBTQ uh, uh, immorality, cult, you name it, 
um, by presenting information to them in the form of entertainment. The most powerful way to educate, right? There are those, as I say, in management, upper-level management in, in Disney now, who have made, avowedly made this case. And there are even uh, recordings of their meetings, individuals speaking at their meetings, uh, high-level Disney officials who are openly saying that this is exactly what they're doing. Uh, we know that they opposed the bill, um, which was a parental rights bill by Governor DeSantis in Florida. And they said, don't say gay. That's how they, they, they mocked the bill to misrepresent it. Uh, Epic Times, the Epic Times has a very, I'd say, thorough covering of this very subject in uh, their edition, I have it here, of April 6th through 12th. And very much worth reading, very enlightening reading. Um, in fact, you know, the bill was signed into law in Florida. And all it does is prevent homosexual teachers from grooming their students in the earliest grades, I think up to third grade. It forbids them to talk about their sexuality and their sexual adventures to their first through third grade, maybe kindergarten through third grade students. That's all it does. They can't talk about that in the classroom. I guess when you get to be fourth grade, well, that's another issue. <coughs> but this is the kind of thing that we're dealing with right now. And we have to realize that there is an enormous amount of thrust. One would say, well, why, why would Disney and why would all of these corporations be lining up behind this now and supporting it? Is it because they think they can make money off it? They probably do. They think there's money to be made. But Disney is going to find out there's money to be lost, too. And uh, corporations that are supporting this are really alienating their own employees in many cases, forcing them to go through, um, forcing them to go through uh, teaching, you know, learning, learning to get, get to go along with it, you know, accepting it. Um, but as we see with Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter, um, it's not about money with them; it's about ideology. You know, they had a chance through their stockholders to make. Uh, like 40% over what the actual value, the market value of the stock was, and the board turned it down. And um, then they want, they, they, they voted in the poison pill, right, to try to prevent Musk or anybody else from taking it over and actually turning it into a uh, form of free speech. That's the one thing that they absolutely are determined not to do, let it become an actual forum for free speech. Uh, so, you know, it, it's not really about money. They're, these people are, are about ideology. <clears throat> so I'd say, well, why are these corporations, uh, like, you say, pushing this LGBTQ plus um, ideology? And the answer is, it's, it's a form of birth control. It all goes back to this. They will push anything that prevents the birth of human beings in any way they can. If they can call the human race by murdering them through abortion, by murdering them through euthanasia, if they can call the human race by pandemics, uh, if they can call the human race by starvation, if they can prevent human life from being born and through birth control pills, uh, by homosexuality, anything that prevents human beings from being born is, is on their radar. It's all about that. It's, it's a, an actual hatred of the human race. And they're trying basically to replace the human race. I mean, we're here that all of this illegal immigration is being foisted on us because they want to replace us here in America. Uh, 
What we really have to do is look at the big picture. That's the picture that they're looking at, a la this uh, Yuval Noah Harari advisor they have, the homos again, the homosexual theorist, theoretician for the, uh, the World Economic Forum. And what they really want to do is replace the entire human race. They want to re-engineer, re-engineer humanity. <clears throat> and they want to make uh, human beings as God created us and as we are fallen by sin. He wants to create the human he wants to make the human race as it exists now obsolete and simply make them go away. And the LGBTQ plus um, uh, <clears throat> mania, if you want to, this, 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 this um, uh, perversion is a very big part of that because they believe that they can prevent the births of a lot of people by trying, by the, the more people that they can make homosexual, the more people they can make sexually deviant so that they will not breed, they call them breeders, they will not bring children to the world, the closer they are to achieving their goal. Now, the eradication of the human race as it is right now, and the digitization of the human race, so that now we have digital man of their creation, and they themselves will be digitized and have immortality that way. This is their uh, crazy utopian goal. And you and I are a part, we're on, the, we're on the, the laboratory table. We are in their Petri dish. We are in their test tube, right? Uh, they want all of us right there so they can achieve the goal at the expense of everyone else. So uh, anyway, Tom, uh, so there you have it. I guess I've gone off on a tangent here, but I think it's uh, a real serious concern. On the, on the positive side? <laughs> yes, rather. <laughs> some positive points. They lose. On the positive side, they will lose. They will fail. They'll fail terribly. Because they underestimate the power of God. They do. They underestimated the power of God when they nailed him to the cross. They underestimated the power of God when they laid the corpse in the arms of our Blessed Lady. They underestimated the power of God when they laid him in the tomb and put the soldiers to guard the tomb. They underestimated the power of God. That's a very, very bad idea and uh, very dangerous because God has consistently shown them that uh, they did, in fact, underestimate his power and his goodness and his love for us. And his goodness and his love and it will always triumph over all of the machinations of, of the would-be gods, the wannabe gods, right? But what's dangerous for us is that we underestimate the power of God. The apostles underestimated the power of God when they ran away from the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Peter has underestimated the power of God when he denied knowing our Lord. <clears throat> There's a great danger in underestimating the power of God. And it took the apostles a bit of convincing to see that our Lord had risen from the dead. I mean, they saw, they saw the wounds, they, they heard his voice, they, they, <clears throat> and yet it was so horrific, the experience uh, was so horrific that it took them a long time to, as it were, get over what they experience there, just to realize the full import of what they were witnessing in the resurrection here, the risen Christ. So we must not make the same mistake <coughs> that they did. We must not make the same mistake the enemies of Christ did. We certainly must not make the same mistake as apostles did. 
We must not underestimate the power of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ the King. He has the power to completely subvert their subversion, to pervert their perversion, to invert their inversion, and make everything turn upright again. Who said that? Well, one man who talked about things that way is G.K. Chesterton in his poem, The Convert. I recommend everybody go read that. It's beautiful. About his own conversion, finally. And he said he bowed his head to receive the water of baptism. And when he stood up, the whole world turned upright all of a sudden. That's how he described it. So God has the power to do that. He can make this world turn upright again, no matter whether they by any diversion or perversion or inversion or subversion, no matter what they try, God is always going to be able to turn the world back upright again. And uh, we have that absolute confidence. And by the grace of God, it will be invincible faith. So have faith, pray. But you have a message of your own. I <laughs> Father, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for everything that you do. Appreciate oh, very well. Thank you, Tim. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.